0: And welcome to Mass Ave. We have Daniel Davis here uh, joining us again to co-host in Tommy Binion's absence. Uh, it's uh, We're going into the 4th of July week. Do you have any big plans for it, Daniel?
1: Uh, I'm just going to try to get as close as possible to the fireworks on the mall.
0: That's the that's biggest It's like the, the standard goal.
1: DC stereotype, but I have yeah, no shame.
0: It's true. There are a lot of crowds out there, so good luck to you. you. Um you. Speaking of the 4th of July, we have Lindsay Burke and Ann Ryland here to join us. Uh, they've done some research on ESAs for military families, which um, we're really interested to hear about. You know their findings in this proposal. Lindsay Burke, just by way of introduction, she is the director of the Center for Education Policy. She is also the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity here at the Heritage Foundation. And Anne is uh, the research assistant who helped her co-author this piece. So thank you guys for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having thanks us. to be here. Yeah, so I guess just to start off, uh, what made you decide that there was a, a big need for this kind of a proposal for military families?
2: Yeah, so it's 4th of July, right? I mean, this yeah. is a great time independence day this is a great time to think about how well military families themselves serve us right how much they protect our freedoms and so we've really been thinking you know our education system should serve them as well as they serve the country. And so that was really the genesis for this idea. Have we really been serving them in a way through these federal programs that are effective, that enable them to choose learning options that work well for their children as they move across the country? And could we potentially modernize these federal military programs that have an education purpose, the same way that we've been modernizing our military generally.
1: So tell us a little bit about that. What's the state of education for students who are Um, children of military parents? And how are they maybe at a disadvantage? And and what are some ways that your research shows that we can improve that?
2: Well, one thing that really struck us was when we started this research, when Ann and I started looking at this, was a survey that Military Times put out. And the Military Times survey found that 35% of respondents said that dissatisfaction with their child's education was a significant factor in their decision to remain or to leave military service altogether. And so we thought, my goodness, right? I mean, if the education options available to active duty military families are really playing that big of a role in their decisions about whether they will even remain in service, this is something that we really need to take a look at. So Anne was able to look at the the number of students who are served by this program. It's about.
3: Roughly 600,000.
2: Yeah, so roughly 600,000 military-connected children. We think um, about 80% of those kids attend district schools, government-run public schools. Most of them are assigned to those schools, and they're assigned based on where their parents are assigned uh, when they sign up for for duty and when they move to a new duty station. And, and so that it was really our thinking. How can we take these dollars? It's a program known as Impact Aid. It's about $1.3 billion, and really modernize it and repurpose it in a way where we are sending the dollars directly to military families themselves and empowering them with control and the ability to choose what works for them.
0: And so how does this differ from other um,
2: school choice options that have been proposed? Yeah. So I guess I I would say in two ways it differs. One is there are, and there isn't, (laughs) really any major role for the federal government when it comes to advancing choice. There are a couple of exceptions. The DC Opportunity Scholarship Mm Program is a really good example of that. The District of Columbia, uh, despite some members really getting upset when we say it, it's under the jurisdiction of Congress, right? And so (laughs) it's appropriate for the federal government to operate, manage, and fund a school choice program in the nation's capital. So that's one example of an exception to that. Um, Native American kids who attend Bureau of Indian Affairs schools, there's a unique contractual obligation between the federal government and tribal lands. Mm-hmm. So it's appropriate to transition that program into a school choice program through federal policy. And we see this third option, uh, what we've just described for military families as a similar option, that this is a program that is fundamentally a program about military students Mm -hmm. and thus has a constitutional warrant and as it exists should be repurposed into a school choice program um, so, the second reason that um, it's a, a little bit different is the structure. So, if you look across the country, most school choice programs in the states historically have been voucher models mm-hmm. and tax credit scholarship models. And those are great and they've worked really well. But what we're seeing increasingly is more and more states, as they start adopting education choice, are starting with education savings accounts. They're much more flexible, they give parents total control over every single dollar in their account. So not only can you pay private school tuition, but you can do all of these other things. You can hire a private tutor. You can do online learning. And with military families, to your earlier question, what are the challenges? They move a lot. Mm -hmm. So the flexibility of an ESA, enabling them to hire online classes or tutors to purchase online classes, There are online options like K-12 Inc that will be consistent across the country that they'll be able to purchase and retain that consistency with an ESA. So it's really two issues at play there, that this is appropriate at the federal level and that it's an ESA model that is the most flexible type of education choice we have to date.
1: Well, it seems like a win-win too, both for the kids and for the military, right? Because because uh, the military is having parents move uh, based on their kids' yeah. needs, and, and, and so that, that creates instability there. Um, do you uh, do you see this as Do you see your proposal as something that could uh, really gain legs uh, on, on the hill with members who are concerned about both the military and uh, their families?
2: Yeah, I think we're in a, a unique situation here because there is, just as you, as you said, this kind of constituency on both sides, right? You have military families, you have members who have military families in their district, active duty uh, servicemen and women uh, who are You know, doing phenomenal work every day. And they want to support those active duty folks as best as they can and have really thought about, is there a better way to serve them and to modernize our ed system to meet their needs? So there's that sort of contingency. And then there's also just the school choice community generally that is looking at an opportunity that we now have. We have an administration that is incredibly supportive of school choice. We have an education secretary. What a breath of fresh air that supports school choice in every form. And so a real opportunity, we see every day more and more empirical research coming out that shows the value of school choice. And so it really is a great time to think about what can we do in a way that's appropriate through federal policy, we (laughs) underscore that as much as possible, to really advance choice. And so two constituencies that, that I think are really important, school choice and military families.
0: Okay, and so tell us a little bit about um, Impact Aid, kind of the, the means for
3: how do you go about transitioning that current pot of money over to this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me just touch briefly on the origin of Impact Aid. It's interesting if you think about. We, we've looked at a little bit of the history, the the transition away from a really base centric system for the military. So it used to be that military families would live on base. They'd have mm-hmm. their doctors, their hospitals, their grocery stores, and their schools all right there. But of course, you know, as as times change and as civilian communities have grown around um, around bases. We're, we're noticing that more, like like Lindsay said, eighty percent of these families, um, their their kids are in the public local public school system. Mm-hmm. So as we think about transitioning that one point three billion dollar pot of money um, into ESAs, we 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 just need to you know r- right now the current system um, children are weighted. It's it's pretty complicated right now. We need mm-hmm. to find a way a good way to to simplify that and um, transition it so that the funding is student-centered as opposed to district school-centered right now
2: yeah exactly and this is something that we think about in general as annie said i mean this is district school systems if you talk to anyone in the school choice world we're thinking how do we move dollars yes of course we're going to publicly fund it Mm -hmm. but does that mean government delivery of education services. And so in in everything that we're thinking about on the school choice front, and I would say it's more than school choice, right? It's education choice at this point when you're hiring private tutors and doing online learning, that it really is how do we take those existing dollars and empower families across the board to direct them. Let's fund the child, not the physical school building, and really enable educational freedom to flourish. And that's at the end of the day what this proposal is all about.
1: Fantastic. Well, both of you, thanks so much for taking the time. We've had Lindsay Burke and Anne Ryland in education at Heritage. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us today on Mass Ave.
2: Thanks
0: for having us.
1: And thank you, uh, Emily, for co-hosting <laughs> with me.
0: Thanks for joining. And just as a reminder, if you do want to read this research from um, Lindsay and Anne, uh, you can find it at heritage.org. We really encourage you to, to pick it up and read it. And we'll be back. Did you know you can now listen to all of our events through SoundCloud or just by visiting our events page on heritage.org? You now have access to hundreds of events and compelling discussions on policy issues from your car, on the train, or the comfort of your own home. Visit heritage.org slash events for more information or search for the Heritage Foundation on SoundCloud. Welcome back to Mass Ave. We have Romina Bacha here with us. She is the deputy director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute here at the Heritage Foundation, where she focuses on spending. So I will turn it over to Tommy.
4: Romina, welcome to Mass Ave. We're going to be talking debt ceiling today, and and, and you're the right person to do it. Listeners out there, uh, you can find Romina on Heritage.org, but uh, she's responsible for the federal budget and pictures, which is a really, really cool product where uh, we use graphs and charts and bar graphs and pie charts and all kinds of good stuff to, to tell the story of the problems that we're facing on the federal budget. Romina joins us today to talk about the debt ceiling. Uh, that's an issue that's on a lot of our minds. Um, it's it's coming up, but we don't know when. Romina, when, when is that going to come due? We're, the story changes every other week here.
5: It does change because the truth is we've actually already hit the debt ceiling, and that happened back in mid-March. Right now the Treasury is using what are called extraordinary measures, but I like to call them debt limit loopholes to continue borrowing. And so they have uh, about $350 billion of those available. Um, now, the reason we don't know the exact date is because—
4: $350 billion or loopholes?
5: Uh, in loopholes. $350 <laughs> and, billion. Well, in dollars and loopholes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> to borrow beyond the debt limit. Um, yeah, so we don't know exactly when. Current projections are um, sometime in mid-September, but Treasury has recently said that they may need to move up that date, but it's unclear if that's for political reasons, because they think they might have more leverage now rather than later, or whether they're really running out of money sooner than expected. So we just have to wait until they put out a clear statement on what the uh, cash balance looks like.
4: And so um, what what we're talking about, the reason we're talking about it is because the Congress has to lift lift the debt ceiling in in some form or fashion. Uh, And there's various uh, opinions on there whether uh, exactly how that process should go. The Treasury Secretary and and, uh, the minority leader, Nancy Pelosi, have said they'd like it to be a clean increase. And that made me so mad. Uh, because clean is a word with uh, positive connotations Um, Mm -hmm. but uh, when we're talking about the debt ceiling clean is it couldn't be uh, more irresponsible Um, I wrote my column in the hill this week on, on how mad that made me that they were using the word clean tell us Tell us what that means and and why we should steer away from it.
5: What that means for them is that we will just raise the debt ceiling with no strings attached, no requirements to actually control spending or the debt going forward. And I think that's very problematic because, unfortunately, we don't talk enough about our rising national debt and what's driving it. And the debt limit is really one of the very few key action-forcing deadlines where we're having this conversation. We're talking about how high the debt is, what kind of debt ceiling increase would be necessary and how long you could You could continue to borrow with that higher debt ceiling. And what's really driving that need to increase the debt ceiling in the first place? We should be talking about how to control spending and the debt so we don't have to do it all the time. The whole idea behind the debt ceiling is really to consider where are we spending? How much are we taxing? Does this make sense? Is this fair to the American people, those that are alive today, but also generations in the future? Right now, we are burdening younger generations and even those yet unborn with unsustainable, um, and, and extremely high debt burdens um, and and the debt ceiling is there for us to reconsider those policies. And what are some of the measures that you would suggest Congress would take to cut spending? So, we put out our blueprint for balance, um, which demonstrates a path to balance in about seven years. So we have a gradual path. You could balance sooner. Um, Congress tends to balance in 10 years or less, so we balance a little faster. But primarily, if you're looking to put the budget on a path to balance, you have to control the main drivers of spending growth. And those are very clearly health care programs. And that is Medicaid, Medicare, and a host of smaller health care programs that are growing for a variety of reasons. And uh, one of them is um, that high government involvement, the extreme regulatory burden that falls on our healthcare sector that makes healthcare unnecessarily expensive. So introducing more private sector involvement, reducing the federal foot stamp in the healthcare sector, and making sure that um, consumers, patients, have more choice and exercise um, uh, better choices when consuming health care um, through, for example, health savings accounts and other policies where consumers have um, access to more transparency and accountability, those can really reduce costs without um, uh, reducing quality access to care. And that's really what you want to accomplish. The other programs that are uh, primary drivers are um, old age programs, including Social Security, Disability, and the Retirement Program, where Congress has simply over-promised benefits, uh, but underfunded them. So we face very large liabilities. For example, in Social Security, our unfunded liabilities total over $13 trillion. Um, Um, And that is assuming that Congress pays back all of the excess um, payroll taxes they collected in the past. No matter how you look at it, the program is underfunded. So we need to begin making changes, especially for younger generations, so those programs are more sustainably funded. But there's also lots of cuts we can make, for example, in corporate welfare programs that unfairly single out special interests for government favors that hurt consumers, hurt workers, and And hurt other companies (laughs) that aren't um, receiving those types of unfair benefits. Um, there's a host of these programs available, especially on the discretionary side of the domestic budget. And we single out several programs in our blueprint for balance. Um, if you want to balance the budget, it's absolutely feasible. You can do so with sensible policies that restore federalism, that uh, return power to the states in many areas where states are just better equipped, including in transportation, environmental protection, um, where they're much better able to respond to local concerns than uh, federal bureaucrats can, Um, but it presents political challenges and that's Mm -hmm. where you need courage. You need uh, bold action and the debt limit is one of those key action forcing deadlines that can bring about um, that bold action and also political cover for doing some of the politically tough things um, like cutting spending. Mm -hmm.
4: So uh, are we going to see bold action? In other words, uh, Congress is going to have to deal with this. It it may be mid-September. It it may be at the end of July. Either either way, uh, they're going to have to deal with this, They're going to have to choose either a clean path, which is which is uh, akin to, to punting, uh, and it's very irresponsible, or they're going to have to choose to put together a package that makes some reforms. Uh, which is more likely? Um, and, and if they do that, if they if they put together that package that makes some reforms what should those reforms be we, we we you just did an excellent job laying out uh, the different ways they should cut are there some budgetary process reforms should they reform the way the debt ceiling works are they going to do it and then if they are what should be in it
5: so Unfortunately, right now, it doesn't look very likely that we'll see, we'll see much bold action from Congress. They seem to want to punt, which unfortunately ha- they have done all too often. But there are also great examples of where con- Congress has really leveraged the debt limit for good, including in 2011 with passage of the Budget Control Act that put in place discretionary spending caps. Um, they have worked to some degree. They've not worked in other ways. Um, they've been structured, unfortunately, to put the largest cuts on defense, which has been a big issue. Um, So they need to be revised. But I think the idea of limiting and controlling spending with a statutory spending cap is a good one. And it can put us on a path to adoption of a balanced budget amendment in the long run, which I think will be ultimately necessary to really constrain the spending appetites in Washington. Um, It's just too easy to overspend, um, especially since most of the current spending or much of it is paid for uh, not f- with current taxes, which are painful, nobody likes to pay higher taxes, uh, but is paid for with borrowing from younger generations, so it makes it easy to spend more now because we don't bear the cost until later in the future, and perhaps our generation won't bear them at all. It'll be the next generation, which is highly unfair. So um, I think that if you want to make long-run reforms to really um, control spending and the debt going forward, you need to adopt an overall spending cap. You can. Build build on the Budget Control Act, but you need that spending cap on the entire federal budget, not just on defense and domestic agencies, but on welfare programs, on health care entitlements. Um, Everything needs to be on the table, especially since uh, two-thirds of our budget is currently growing on autopilot, completely uncontrolled. That's what's called mandatory spending or entitlement spending, and that is healthcare programs, income support programs, welfare programs, unemployment insurance, and a host of others, including miscellaneous things like uh, transportation and agriculture subsidies. So you have a lot of programs to work with, um, and we need to put a cap on it all um, so for Congress to... Um, Deliberate over those reforms on a regular basis It should really happen annually
4: You know, we're big on metaphors here at Mass Ave um, I, I, I just want to go back to the, the punt metaphor This is punting on first down when you're down by $20 trillion <laughs> uh, This isn't the, the responsible way of punting where it's fourth down and, and, and your defense has been playing strong and you might get the ball back So we always want to go back to our metaphors, double them down What's the, um, uh, you know... <laughs> I hear uh, I hear about federal spending all day, and if you're listening to this federal podcast, this isn't the first time you're realizing that uh, there's a federal spending problem. Um, but make it real for us. What's the day after tomorrow uh, nightmare scenario that you could make a movie out of uh, for, from federal spending? What, what, what should the men and women in Congress be afraid of to motivate them to, to do the right thing here?
5: Right now, what we have is that we're suffering a silent crisis we have a very high national debt that is dragging down economic growth and is contributing to a very low growth figures. And what that means for individuals is that they have lower wages than they otherwise would have. There are fewer opportunities for new jobs, higher wage growth and uh, new business formation. So that overhaul has an impact on um, reducing economic growth and economic opportunities for all Americans. That's already happening. And that's what I mean by silent crisis. Now what happens tomorrow? So there are two key scenarios that you could envision. One is that we suffer a very long period of stagnation like you see in Japan. Japan's uh, debt is almost twice uh, the size of ours, uh, their public debt. Much of it is actually financed domestically. The Japanese save a lot. In the US we rely on foreigners for about half of our public debt accumulation which is much higher than the share in in Japan. So we rely a lot on outside investment Investors, and um, we need to project a confidence. We need to show them that the federal government is responsible, that their money is in good hands, and that uh, their interest and in principal on their on the debt that they have uh, bought from the U.S. government is uh, secure. But in order to do that, we need to put the budget on a more fiscally sustainable path. Because right now, every time the Congressional Budget Office puts out a report, um, they say that our debt is on a highly unsustainable trajectory, and that they that it will uh, lower growth even more that will hurt all Americans and it also could potentially uh, pose a national security risk because when you are confronted with a crisis situation and you have such high debt levels um, then you have fewer options you have less flexibility to deal with uh, whatever circumstances come your way whether that be another economic or financial crisis or um, it could also be a national security crisis and we want to be prepared for that that but that means making making a down payment on the debt when times are good, and now is the time to do that, not wait uh, for the next crisis. We're unlikely to face um, a scenario as severe as Greece, um, primarily because they rely on another currency for their uh, economy and for their borrowing. The US government, with the US dollar being a reserve currency, has a little more flexibility to borrow at higher levels, but that all relies on um, investor confidence in the US Economy uh, going forward, and um, to what extent they believe that their money is in good hands. And for that, we need to adopt a sustainable path, a sustainable fiscal path to signal that confidence so that um, they'll continue to invest in our country, creating businesses and jobs.
0: All right. Well, on that note, let's uh, hope that they adopt some of those uh, proposals. And if you do want to find out more about, you know, some of Heritage's suggestions for cutting the debt, uh, check out our budget blueprint at heritage.org. Romina, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.
4: Uh, listeners, we'd really love for you to check us out uh, on uh, on iTunes. Hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted when we when we have a new episode. Uh, we'd love for you to follow Romina on Twitter. Romina, what's your Twitter handle? It's
5: at Romina Bacha.
4: Uh, she'll be putting out uh, her latest papers on that, uh, her thoughts as this, progress, as this process progresses and, and even some media hits uh, when she goes on um, uh, CNBC and MSNBC and Fox News to, to explain this to the world. Uh, we, we really enjoyed our time today, Romina. Thanks a lot. Uh, that's it for, uh, for the debt ceiling on MassApp.